0: Hello, and welcome back to the Classical Music Pod. We've been on a nice
1: long Easter break, but we're back with more podcast treats for you. We've got Arthurian legend, Estonian beards, and our first encounter with the Viking of 6th Avenue. Let's get on with the pod.
0: Good news! Mm. There's a new national campaign called Music for Dementia 2020, which has been set up with a mission to make music
1: available to everyone living with dementia by 2020. Programme director Grace Meadows, who also works as an NHS music therapist, has said that music can be a lifeline for people living with dementia. It facilitates shared quality musical moments with friends, family and carers. Music for people living with dementia isn't a nicety, it's a necessity which is a really strong soundbite.
0: It is, isn't it? And it's completely true. It's been proven by the International Longevity Centre and the Utley Foundation. They've done both done research, which has found that music therapy
1: improves a person's physical health and mental well-being. Alongside the Music for Dementia 2020 campaign, the NHS has also recently proposed using music as part of their new treatment plan. Mm, so published last week, the proposal, which has been set out by Health and
0: Social Care Secretary Matt Hancock, uh, describes how doctors would prescribe personal playlists to their patients which hmm. feels a little bit silly or a
1: little bit superficial Mm. but perhaps of more use is that the government is also aiming to introduce social prescribing which will include exposing patients to the arts and reducing their need for uh, medication.
0: Yeah absolutely and it's estimated that by 2021 more than a thousand social prescribing link workers uh, will be trained to assist 900,000 people living
1: with dementia in the UK so that's wonderful. We couldn't find a good segue between these two bits of news, so we chose to express it through the medium of music.
0: Two teenage boys in America are going to prison after they attacked Cleveland Orchestra violinist Young Ting
1: Lee, and they
0: stole his car, which had his violin and his bow in, uh, which is valued at
1: $40,000. The teens sold the bow to a pawn shop the next day for $30. A mere $39,970 dollars undervalue. Mm.
0: So Lee gave evidence in court this week and they will be going to prison for five and eight years respectively.
1: Perhaps there though they will encounter the inspiring Ricardo Mutti who this week was accompanying Joyce the Donato and two of the Chicago Symphony's principal players at a juvenile correctional facility. He told inmates Mozart did not have an easy life. He was always losing jobs to people of inferior talent. Remember that. Just because someone gets a position and you don't, it doesn't necessarily mean that person is the best or better than you. That's inspiring. We've been talking about uh,
0: the Chicago Symphony Orchestra a lot recently because they've been on strike for the past few weeks. Now, over in Holland, there is a group of musicians who might well end up going on strike very soon, as the Dutch Oberst Doreen Schoen has been talking about starvation-level fees for freelance musicians
1: in the Netherlands. What does she say, Sam? In professional orchestras, from the Concertgebouw, the Metropole, to the regional orchestras, one receives 87 euros gross for a three-hour rehearsal. Travel time is not reimbursed. You can spend seven to eight hours for 87 euros. If I play solos for a packed house, I get 136 euros. It's about $150 or £125. By point of comparison,
0: the Frankfurt Opera's director, Bernard Loeb, has also said his musicians are
1: seriously underpaid, ranking 27th in Germany's orchestral pay scale. This is despite the fact that playing in Frankfurt, you would earn 76,000 euros per year. Yeah, that's 64,000 pounds, according to the statistics from
0: the National Orchestra Association. What's incredible is that the players in the Berlin Philharmonic are paid
1: on average 114,000 euros a year, which is 98,000 pounds. Whilst that is a lot of money, and it is incredible how well the Berlin are managing to sort out their finances, if we compare how that world-class bracket is paid across other professions, perhaps it doesn't look like so much money after all. Mm. Britain's best-paid orchestra, the LSO,
0: are currently on their first ever tour of South America. They're playing nine concerts in Colombia, Peru,
1: Argentina, Uruguay, Chile, and Simon Rattle will be conducting. A little further north, Lucia Lucas has made her debut as the first transgender baritone singing the title role in Don Giovanni in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Despite all the media preamble, actually when it came to it, no major media descended on Tulsa. Mm. We did get a nice review from Tulsa World, though. Uh, They said, In the title role,
0: Lucia Lucas is nothing short of a revelation. She possesses a voice that can rattle the rafters with its
1: power without ever sacrificing subtlety of expression. Hopefully more people go and see it. Mm. If they do, perhaps they'll have the same positive reaction as a child who was in Symphony Hall in Boston last week. Yep, after the Handel and Haydn
0: Society concert, a child let out a cry of wow and was heard on the radio broadcast. So the CEO of the HHS, David Sneed, wrote to all the supporters to try and track him down. He called the exclamation, one of the most wonderful moments I have ever
1: experienced in a concert hall. The good news is they've found him. Nine-year-old Ronan Matin, his grandfather Stephen, had taken him to the concert. Ronan is on the autism spectrum and expresses himself differently to how other people do, according to his grandfather. Apparently, Ronan's going to have a conversation with the conductor of the concert, Harry Christopher's, over Skype. Analysis. Today, Tim, I'm here to tell you that Teluchis Antiterminum is not just a religious choral piece first published in 1575. I'm here to tell you that it's also a combination of mythic Welsh harmony and Roman chant fused together by English composer Thomas Tallis into the musical voice of Queen Elizabeth I's Reformed Church. Mm, jolly good. It sounds like this. So the Roman element first. The chant that we hear at the beginning predates Talus' composition by several hundred years, carrying religious significance and bonus musical familiarity for the congregations of the time. Talus weaves the chant melody into polyphonic voices, with the alto giving a dummy lead each time, then the soprano singing full phrases from the chant. The first two chant phrases highlight a couple of key features. That there's a heavy reliance on that minor third interval, fresh from playground taunting, that one. We can also hear that we're not in a conventional scale, but in fact the Mixolydian mode, made explicit at the tail end of the second phrase. If we were in a standard major scale, it would sound like this instead. Tim's Modal Trivia the
0: Mixolydian is the same mode as Clocks by Coldplay. The folk song She Moved Through the Fair and the Na 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 bit from Hey Jude. Imagine if they were all played together,
1: imagine. So it's an unusual, beautiful melodic shape and it's used to send monks to bed. They sing it at the end of the day in their Compline service, kind of like a lullaby. The mystical Welsh Harmony bit is where things start getting a bit more into the realms of medieval fake news. In a theory first articulated by Geoffrey of Monmouth in his 12th century hit book, History of the British Kings, it is claimed that Britain is named after Brutus the Trojan, grandson of Aeneas, who sailed from Troy and fathered a line of kings that included Arthur, of Sword and the Stone legend, and who along the way defeated the Saxons, Picts, Scots, Irish, Icelanders, Swedes, the Orkney Islanders, Finns, Danish, and finally the Gauls. But unfortunately, all this conquering was lost when Arthur was just about to take Rome, as he had to come home to settle a family dispute. The legend goes that the Britons were then defeated by the invading Saxons and driven back to the deepest, darkest fringes of these isles. Wales. It was here, in amongst the valleys and beacons, that authentic Trojan harmony was preserved. Gerald of Wales observed at the time in his Descriptio Cambria that the Britons, i.e. the Welsh, do not sing in unison, like the inhabitants of other countries, but in so many parts.
0: Welsh men sing in harmony, the Trojans.
1: By the way, in between the Brutus and King Arthur bits, Joseph of Arimathea, Jesus' richest disciple and resident of modern-day Israel, had jumped across the sea to Glastonbury to share Christianity with them. I did say it was getting a bit mythic. The same people who believed all this stuff believed that when Welshman Henry Seventh won the throne, it was the fulfilling of Merlin's prophecy that the Red Dragon of Wales would rise and defeat the White Saxon Dragon. Very Game of Thrones. And as a result of all this, Henry VIII's schism with the Roman Catholic Church was not making something new, but a purging of old foreign influences, a return to an authentic British Christianity. We're nothing if not nostalgic. So back to Tommy Tallis. To satisfy the peculiar religious climate of the time, he had to incorporate some of the indigenous natural harmony of the Welsh Britons, but preserve the religious melodic shape of the Roman chant. This throws up one or two unusual moments. Hostemque nostrum comprime, tread underfoot our ghostly foe, shifts to a low major tonality, expressing the combative religious overtones through harmonic means. And then towards the end we have two compromises. The first a cadence ruled by the Roman modality on the word comprime. That G natural to A major is a very folky sound. And then the final cadence, where perhaps the pressure to provide British harmonic closure results in the chant melody altering from this... to this... Listen out for it in the soprano part. Whether or not you believe Brutus brought the British harmony or not, whether you think Tallis was a Catholic or not, what is undeniable is the 16th century was a golden era for British choral composition. William Byrd, Thomas Tallis, John Bull, John Taverner, the original, and many more were all knocking around. Weirdly, several hundred years later in the early 20th century, when composers like Vaughan Williams were collecting the distinctly British folk tunes like She Moved Through the Fair, it was the modal melodic element that proved a real hit with them. Similarly, British pop songs have conquered the world using modality, whether that's Hey Jude in the 60s or Clocks in the 90s. Tim, you're
0: back from Estonia? I am. I went to the Estonian Music Days Festival. Actually, the World Music Days Festival being hosted in Estonia this year. Fantastic. Now, let me regale you with some Estonian facts for you that will blow your mind. Please do. The Estonian population is 1.3 million, or thereabouts. Okay. They have 47,613 choirs and 880 conductors.
1: Whoa, so that's like uh, 300 people per choir. It's something crazy like that.
0: They also have... The Estonian Song Festival, which is this gathering of singers from across the country and they get together in this specifically built park with a big grandstand and they all sing together. And Amazing. 51% of the population have at some point participated in this and 90% have followed it on TV. My mind is blown. I know. There are three Estonian professional choirs that have run, won Grammys. The Ella Hein, the Estonian Philharmonic Chamber Choir and Vox Clementis. And I'm fascinated by this country, having been and talked to some of the people there. I spoke to the music advisor to the Ministry of Culture called Marley Lispatz. She's a lovely woman. She she actually thought that perhaps part of the reason for this culture was indirect result of Soviet rule, in a way. Because culture was free. In a way, it was all extremely cheap under Soviet rule because, as part of a socialist regime, everyone is entitled to culture. Yeah. Therefore, they were so used to seeing so much stuff all the time and they didn't have very much else on. They didn't have TV or bits and pieces. So they went to concerts yeah. and they read lots of books. It's just been ingrained within them ever since.
1: I mean, it sounds sort of great. I mean, I know there are many drawbacks to Soviet rule, but that bit is
0: cool. Yeah, I know. So a nice silver lining for you there. So anyway, I went to the Music Days Festival. It was a week-long festival thereabouts, mm-hmm. and it's basically a new music festival. And there are lots of trendy composers with beards, yep. stroking the beards, and making plinky-plonk sounds. But there are mm. a few fantastic things going on as well. For example, the concert with the Estonian... Philharmonic Chamber Choir, which actually went straight from the airport to go and see at St. Nicholas's Church. And this was a programme put together by Caspar Putnins, his conductor over there, and it was perfectly suited to the acoustic of the church, which was deathless. It just went on for miles. (laughs) Wow. Now these are the only two Estonian composers featured and they kind of represent the lineage of Estonian choral music over sure. the last few years. So we've got people like Arve Pert and Jan Ratz who wrote music during the Soviet era and linking them is this composer Toivo Tulev, who is slightly older than Helen Tulev, who has emerged in the last decade and is quite well known across the world and has had lots of works performed.
1: So some stuff there, if people have enjoyed Pert before, there are things to go on to.
0: Absolutely, and I would thoroughly recommend listening to either Helen Toole or Toivo Tulev's music. The highlight of the evening for me, however, was from a piece by Thomas Simaku, who teaches at York University, teaches oh, composition, right. but he is actually from Albania originally. And there was this incredibly powerful moment where an eight note, I went and asked him afterwards how many <laughs> notes were in the chord, and he said, he went, yeah, it's eight notes, really enthusiastically. And this huge chord uh, got... Blasted into the acoustic and stayed there for about 20 seconds, and everyone was just blown away. And the final piece of the evening was by a Belgian composer called Wim Hendrix, which sounds a little bit like Jimi Hendrix. In yeah, a way. Hey, Wim. And that was written, actually, originally for the BBC Singers as a tribute to the English composer Jonathan Harvey, who I hadn't come across.
1: Oh, yeah. I've sung some Harvey. It's really wonderful aleatoric stuff, semi-improvisatory kind of things. Uh, Okay. Well, this was a piece
0: that had... It was basically one very long-held dusty chord on the organ. Yeah. There was a trumpeter who was sat at the side, and the singers split up into little cells all around the church, and the trumpet would sort of do a call and the song the singers would respond to him. And it was very moving and that was a really wonderful way to finish the evening actually. In complete contrast, the day afterwards I went to a concert with the Tallinn Chamber Orchestra under Risto Eust. Another one of the eight hundred
1: and eighty conductors.
0: Indeed. And they have for a long time been associated with Ave Pert. They've done loads of workshopping and recording and performance of his works. So anybody hoping to catch a bit of tintinabuli were in for quite the shock when they got to this particular concert, which was challenging for all but the hardiest of chin strokers, I would say. Right. So the festival's theme is uh, Through the Forest of Songs, and actually this was particularly apt because I felt completely immersed in a dense intellectual thicket throughout the whole thing. (laughs) The programme notes were equally baffling, Sir Adam Porebski's semi-overture all he gave us was six baffling questions that started with, what is a semi-overture? And I just thought, well, I don't know, Adam. You tell us what a semi-overture is. Yeah. Uh, but ironically, actually, this was probably the piece that spoke, that displayed the most contin- continuity and I appreciated the most. Conversely, the Slovakian composer Adrian Democh states very candidly in his programme note, that strings, walls, clusters and dreams is to speak for itself. And it definitely did. There were walls of sound, there were dense clusters and there were dreams, but I have a feeling that Dimoch is eating way too much cheese before bedtime.
1: A few nightmares in there.
0: Yeah, it was... Ugh. Uh, also premiered were native Estonian Lisa Hirsch's Canvas. This was. It was an interesting piece. It wasn't necessarily... <laughs> pleasant to listen to but it was inter- interesting what she did it, it kind of felt like a morphing orb of microtones that slowly it was actually supposed to imitate just intonation and sort of timbres that you get in flageolets which are these ancient instruments. yeah yeah and then there were two compositions by Korean composers Point points, and points, was one of them was called, by De Han and Hai Lee's Sorimuni 2, which had loads of cool extended techniques and crazy textures, but I still think that no amount of trickery and textual innovation makes up for a basic lack of musical coherence, in my opinion. The concluding work was by an Estonian grandmaster, the previously mentioned Jan Ratz. It's a sequel to one of his uh, his concerto for chamber orchestra in 1961. So this was the second one. Now, the first is one of the the most performed Estonian works internationally. Yeah. It's a really famous piece of orchestral music. But this one was fantastic. It was such a relief hearing it. It's this really kooky, sort of neoclassic slash minimalist strange little thing, and I really enjoyed it. It had this combination of rising arpeggio passages and little duck-divey melodies, and it cr- it sort of gave a really concrete ending to what might have been otherwise a incredibly marshy affair. So I sort of had to conclude by the end, yeah, I didn't necessarily enjoy a lot of that, but I was incredibly impressed by the orchestra's commitments to commissioning new music and playing yeah. new music, and every single one of the works played, I think... It, with the exception of one, has been written in the last seven years, and I think that's really impressive. Just for me, no, no amount of philosophising can mitigate that amazing sense of relief one feels at hearing the opening bar, uh, bars of the Rutz Concerto, those tonal chords. And it brought to mind um, a quote, it's by Charles Ives' father, and he said, Why tonality should be thrown out for good, I can't see. Why it should always be present, I can't see either. Love, Love. Classical, jazz. Classical,
1: jazz. Classical, jazz.
0: Drop it. It isn't worth it. And actually, you're not very good at it.
1: This week, I've been reviewing Inland, the new disc of minimalist piano music released on Infiné Records. French pianist Vanessa Wagner, no relation, records a range of well-known and less familiar pieces written across the last couple of decades. The disc opens with possibly my favourite track on the disc, Für Fritz, a piece by the blind Viking of 6th Avenue, a composer called Moondog. What? (laughs) He was a familiar presence, apparently, to New Yorkers as a busker, but did maintain a serious composition and instrument inventing career. Mm. Uh, And he's reported to have said that I'm not going to die in 4-4 time, and instead preferred Snake time. Slithery time signatures that are not ordinary.
0: I really like the sound of it. Yeah, I think the
1: guy looks really cool. He's well worth a Google moondog. Um, and this snake time sort of manifests itself in Fur Fritz and Elf dance through the these like funky dance melodies that occasionally have slightly foreshortened bars. So they're like 15-8 mm. or something like that. Or funny little arpeggiaic... Kind of grace notes yeah. that will just throw the otherwise predictable melody off course, and will make these accompanying chords that go all the way through for Fritz just check themselves. It's a really fun listen because it kind of sets up expectation and then challenges it all the way through. Is the first thing I'd heard by Mr. Dog, and I would totally recommend going and seeking out more things. Mm. Was there anything else that stood out? Well, uh, throughout the disc, pedal points are a feature, so I just wanted to touch on them for a second. There's repeated notes around which things are going to change, and that's kind of true of all of minimalism. And one of my favourite tracks on the disc, Hans Otter Das Buch der Klänge, has a really fantastic use of pedal notes, where they serve as the root of a chord... And then the chord above it changes, the harmonic shape that's outlined shifts and glistens. And it, to my mind, I was seeing fish scales, that sort of, you know, when you see uh, different yeah, colours and yeah, the I greens know. and the pinks and the blues. And the root of the chord, the pedal point, just kept drawing us back. And we saw new meaning inscribed on that one note because of what was changing around it. I think repetition can be enormously powerful, thinking like Monet's uh, repeated... Paintings of Rouen Cathedral, or a really good folk song, where the melody, sorry, the chorus will accrue new meanings through the song because of what we 've heard, the context of the verses. A really good pedal point we gain new understanding of it because of what's changed around it. My least favorite track on the disc is philip glass's etude number no. nine it 's quite a famous work it's one of the sort of minimalist piano bangers, but actually i don't I don't feel like we gain anything through the the repetition. The places that he goes, the things that he changes, don't change with meaning. They just sort of kind of poppy harmony chords underneath a repeated figure, and to me, I end up feeling the same at the end of the track as I did at the beginning. Partly because it's all played incredibly loudly, bashing it out, just bashing it out. Kind of like adolescent pianist who's first learned Beethoven. Kind yeah, of I've thing. got one in mind. Yeah, yeah, and just absolutely myself. <laughs> but when you know they just absolutely thrash it out and they feel like a genius yeah i, was, yeah, it's, I, I do that, that time with too. with ratman enough
0: yeah Dun dun
1: dun. yeah and <laughs> thank you for that it feels a little bit like to me that glass invites that treatment with this piece yeah other familiar and indeed favorite tracks on the disc include the heart asks pleasure first better known as the soundtrack to the film the piano By Michael Nyman. On the beach. Michael Nyman on the beach. Vanessa Wagner plays it with such lyricism and sensitivity that even though I think a lot of people are quite familiar with this track, I was hearing totally new things in it. She illuminates new corners of the piece and I felt like I was discovering it afresh. It's a real highlight on the disc. And I think the reason why that piece works and so many of these pieces work is because it always feels like she's improvising it, like she's making that music anew. And uh, that's an enormous testament to any performer. I think if you, if you can mistake it for them coming up with it themselves,
0: absolutely. Is she a minimalist
1: specialist herself? Well, that's the, one of the remarkable things about Vanessa Wagner, is that she's recorded everything from Ramo to Rachmaninoff, Schubert to Scribin. Her previous disc, which was actually also a minimalist repertoire, was a uh, co-production with Aphex Twin, the DJ. Mm. Uh, and versatile. Versatile. She's playing a whole range of repertoire as though it is her home territory. Real props to her. Off the back of that Aphex Twin collaboration, she's included Vim Mertens' club banger Struggle for Pleasure, which some people might recognise as sort of, there's a lot of advert music drawn from that. Her playing throughout the disc is, I think, really, really top draw. And she adds a huge amount to the case for piano minimalist music. You know, you can't say more than that. She can, She makes this repertoire more convincing by playing it. It's kind of like um, Dietrich Fischer, Discow, and Lieder. Yes. Anytime you hear him sing, you're like, wow, that is... What a phenomenal song that is. And you could mistake every single Schubert song for the masterpiece. And I think Vanessa Wagner is doing a similar job with this repertoire.
0: Have there been any negatives that you
1: can point out in the CD? I would say the only real reservation that I have is that this repertoire places a real onus on the performer to make it feel finished. Or make it feel like that there's a reason we finished here and not somewhere else. Even a track that I'm quite attracted to, Ramble on Cortana by Gavin Bryars, which is sort of jazz club, beautiful harmony shifting around. Actually, I'm not sure why it ends after four minutes and not after three minutes. Mm. It doesn't feel like that's built into the structure. I suppose the fact that I've noticed that is maybe a drawback from uh, what I've been raving about Vanessa Wagner. Maybe she doesn't manage to make it feel like that. But for me, the responsibility lies with a lot of these composers. We've been talking a lot about how structures can be drawn from the microscopic in pieces. Yes. And if that isn't the case, or if there isn't uh, waypoints built in to give us a sense of closure towards the end, I have no real reason for understanding why it stops in one place rather than another.
0: That was Wishes by Fraser Wilson, performed by Apollo 5 and taken from their latest album, *O Radiant Dawn. I caught up with the founding member of Apollo 5 last week, Claire Stewart, to talk to her about the album and find out a little bit more about the group. Claire. Hi. Thank you for coming and talking to us on the podcast.
2: You're welcome
0: So you're a founding member and artistic director of Apollo Five. That's Can good. you tell me about how the group came into existence?
2: Sure, of course. um so about nearly about nine and a half years ago, um we set up Apollo Five. Um, I wanted to get back into singing and um, I wanted to start my own group and um, so I had been working closely with our sister group, Votches 8, mm. um, helping them to develop their education programme. So um, at that point, I decided that mm, it was a good time to start another group under our umbrella mm. organisation, the VCM Foundation. So um, we put feelers out, and we found um, four like-minded people, um, some of whom we'd worked with through our um, uh, youth choir. Um, and we we got together, and we started to build... What is now uh, Apollo Five?
0: Lovely. You say you um, you hadn't been singing for a little bit before that, or you. I had a bit of a break from a singing.
2: Break. Um, um, I did other things, and I kept. But I've always had yeah. that sort of passion oh. for singing and for singing in, in uh, a group, a yeah. small group. So yeah, yeah. I wanted to start my own small ensemble.
0: And your new album, Radiant Dawn. It features music spanning several hundred years. And like, works by Bird, Monteverdi, Schumann, Finzi, who's my favourite, oh. I adore Finzi. James McMillan, who wrote the title track, Radiant yeah. Dawn. Um, what's the theme that binds these pieces together? Yeah,
2: sure. So the theme is basically the human journey. Um, the journey that we all travel and the experiences and the emotions that we all kind of um, come up against through through our life. So it's mm. about everything from birth, growth, uh, exploration, struggle, death, and ultimately rebirth mm. so
0: and is there a, a particular piece or composer that resonates with you the most?
2: Well, I think we chose the Macmillan um as the title track um, because it's it 's all about the the dawning the a radiant dawn sort of uh, sort of hopeful beginnings, and I think that kind of resonates with mm. us and it kind of reflects um the kind of hopeful nature of the disc.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When was it recorded, by the way? was It was
2: It was recorded last May uh, oh, okay. here at the Gresham Centre. Uh, at the Gresham Centre. Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, And it's coming out next month, am I right? It's or coming
2: l- out this month, the this end month? of the mo- this month, on the 31st of May. 31st of yeah. May. Ah, oh,
0: wonderful. Well, we'll look forward to that. And so, under the VCM Foundation, both Apollo 5 and Voters 8 are active within schools and music hubs. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit more about your sort of what your aims are with that and what work you do and the pro and what you sure. get up to um,
2: when we started the foundation, which was at the same time as, as when we established Fortress eight, it was always in our plan to to have this education aspect of of our work so performance and education sort of side by side um, i think it, it, I think it comes from um, our own experiences we 've all In the organisation, being so lucky in the musical experiences, Uh, whether that's through school or outside school, we've all had wonderful teachers and opportunities, and and we we really saw the value of that in our lives, and we we really wanted to pass that on to another generation. Absolutely. So that's where it comes from. Mm. Um, So we work, wherever we go to perform, we try to set up um, a workshop or a masterclass or a longer-term project, and that could be with schools or with um, community groups, and actually, people of all ages.
0: Yeah, sow the seed early and yeah, get yeah. people interested. And Polyfive, 5, you, you you sort of straddle multiple genres, as yeah. it were, because um, I mean, you've re- you've recorded lots of classical, but you do folk and jazz and pop. Is there one genre in particular that you most associate with the group? Or- and, and do you think this this versatility is important is that is, is that part of the reason you do it is it to attract audiences I mean what's
2: yeah so I think I think um, I think our uh, musical backgrounds tend to be through the British English choral tradition yeah. so through um, th- as young children in cathedrals or churches or and then on to universities um, as Chapel choristers yeah. in the collegiate system, so our background really is um, sacred music. Mm. So, and and particularly early sacred music. Mm. Um, so we we I think that's that is what informs our um, programming, um, as a as a basis for our programming. Yeah. But on the other hand, we all do enjoy um, performing different genres of music, and I think as an audience member, um, I think that's that gives you variety yeah. throughout a program. So. Yeah. We we sort of it does inform uh, the basis of our programming uh, and also our performance ethos, yeah. which is to kind of kind of take that music off the page and really um, engage with the audience. Yeah,
0: I think that's very important. Would you say, I, I suppose, growing up there would have been groups like the Swingle Singers and the King Singers. They were a big impact on me as a yeah. as a singer growing up. I, yeah, would, would, was it a similar? Did you listen to them?
2: Um yes I I I would say that they were they were um a big influence in that they they showed people like me who, who were interested in starting a group um sort of the king singers watchers eight um swingle singers they showed you that it it is possible if you want to make a career um mm. as an ensemble singer like this um it is possible yeah so okay. they were great role models I And think. you're
0: vindicating that oh.
2: <laughs> hopefully
0: yeah Are you doing any festivals this summer?
2: Yeah, well, we've had a busy couple of months. We've done festivals. um, uh, We've been in Heidelberg, Weimar, and uh, all over France. And we've got some other fun things coming up. We're we're doing the Irish International Acapella Festival. So this is our um, Irish debut. So that's at the end of June. And then we're also uh, we're also doing um, the Milton Abbey International um, Festival in uh, at the end of July as well. So lots of fun stuff coming up.
0: Um, So sorry to bring it up, but I do find this very interesting. Talking to just lots of classical musicians, I think it's important that people that it's out there. But impending disruption to freedom of movement, declining revenue from. Music sales and there's a continued drop in state-funded access to music education. So lots of people are arguing. There was a recent Guardian Guardian article that was arguing that there's this sort of perfect storm of musical crises. Is this something that you're with with Brexit? Is it and education the way it's going? Is it something that you're conscious of um, as a performing artist mm. and w- working in education? Uh, and are you optimistic that that ensembles that that as you say that that ensembles like Five will continue to emerge, um, um, yeah, as you were saying earlier, that you were inspired to make this ensemble. Yeah. Do you think that that's, do you think there is a problem and do you think it will be all right, basically?
2: It's certainly something that, yes, we, we as lots of other people are worried about and it's definitely something we're consciously thinking about. Um, but we, we continue to do what we can to support um, education in schools because we are so we're so aware of how important it is, mm. and it it really is fundamental to what we are doing. So we'll we continue to work towards supporting music education wherever possible. Um, I, as I mentioned before, we we've all had wonderful opportunities. So it's yeah. we're, we're we're not going to stop striving for for that and for creating opportunities yeah. for 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 people. Um, so it's, it's, it's crucial that we support classroom teachers and um, music and school life as a whole.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I completely agree. Well, hopefully, hopefully in a few years' time we'll be through it and we'll...
2: I hope
0: so. We'll All right. Well, Claire, thank you very much for speaking to me. Thank you. Um, it was a pleasure. We will look out for the album coming out on the 31st, 31st of May. May. Great. Thank you. Tim, what's going on this week? If you like all things Canadian, the Canada National Arts Centre Orchestra under Alexander Shelley, who's their music director, will be going to be doing a concert at Cadogan Hall. Sokolovic, Ravel, Brahms, and they're on their European tour right now. And it's
1: going to be good. Nice. In St. Paul's Church, Brighton, Anna Litvinenko is playing the cello with Craig White on the piano, doing Bernstein, Shostakovich and Saryahu in a programme called Spins and Spells.
0: Yeah, I I think that's probably one of the few times you're going to be able to catch Sarriaho programmed in Brighton, so I think that's worth
1: reflecting on. Awesome. On Wednesday the 15th at the Lighthouse Pool, Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra are performing Elgar Dream of Gerontius, which is a piece you like and I don't, but Mm -hmm. if you like it, then go. It's also Monteverdi's birthday. He was born in 1567.
0: And the anniversary of the opening of the current Royal Opera House.
1: Because it burned down before. It did. Head to Liverpool's Philharmonic Hall on Thursday the 16th if you want to catch a programme of Russian heroes, Prokofiev, Shostakovich and Kabalevsky. Interestingly, they've included Kachaturian there, Tim.
0: He was Georgian. He's oh. not Russian. Controversial. Mm.
1: Um, and what's happening on Friday the 17th?
0: I love this. Well, it's sad. It, it's <laughs> Sati's birthday. It, 1866, he was born. But nobody's putting on a concert of Sati, And nobody's oh. even programmed any Sati in any concert happening that I've found.
1: Does he share a birthday with anyone good?
0: No, it's a rubbish birthday <laughs> as well. Jeremy Vine, Bob Saget and Enya. <laughs>
1: Poor Saturday Saturday the 18th looks a bit more promising, though. It does. It's all happening in
0: Cardiff at the same time, 7.30, ah. in the BBC Hodnot Hall. The BBC National Orchestra of Wales, under Ryan Bancroft, are doing a programme of Mark Bowden. who has got a world premiere of his descent. Petrus Vass, a Latvian composer's second violin concerto, The Lonely Angel. Oh, uh, yeah. Ben Wallace... Five Gifts for an Old Friend, and that's a European premiere. And then Steve Reich, Music for Ensemble and Orchestra, that's a Welsh premiere. And then Claire Victoria Roberts' Blue Lab.
1: What an amazing programme.
0: Yeah. In St. David's Hall, over the other side of town, the Halle and Sir Mark Elder are playing the Spalius Violin Concerto with Victoria Mulliver, who is one of the best violinists in the world. Yeah.
1: So, in fact, two of you need to get to Cardiff this Saturday. Like and subscribe. Like and
0: subscribe.
1: Our first thank you this week goes out to David Crummy for getting in touch about why bagpipes are so incredibly loud. And why are they loud? Well, apparently it's to do with the amount of air pressure you can generate with the bag under your arm, and that means that your reed can be made of very thick cane, so when it vibrates it's a really big vibration.
0: Also a big thank you to the Jesualdo 6 for letting us use that wonderful recording of the talis.
1: Infine Records were also very generous in lending us some clips to illuminate us talking about Vanessa Wagner. Mm. And if you've enjoyed this podcast,
0: then please do send us a letter at theclassicalmusicpod at gmail.com or tweet at us or Instagram us.
1: It's well worth following us on Twitter at the moment because Tim is making some very silly Guess the Composer things. Mm.